welcome to The Doctor Diaries, a podcast which will take you behind the scenes of the intriguing medical world. Join me, Hanya Roversby, as I chat to our guests who will take us through their insights, experiences and ideas as an expert, thought leader and trailblazer in this space. Welcome to Dr. Diaries. Today, it's my absolute pleasure to speak to the amazing Dr. Marie Rostick. Marie is a Melbourne-trained plastic and reconstructive surgeon with a specific interest in breast, hand and aesthetic surgery. She graduated from Adelaide University in 1988 and moved to Melbourne to undertake surgical training, completing her fellowship in plastic and reconstructive surgery in 1998. Marie did her fellowship in Australia and overseas And now she has a very successful practice in Mornington in Victoria, Australia. Welcome, Marie. Thank you very much, Hanyul. (laughs) Now, I need to disclose we uh, have known each other for a very, very long time and I've dragged you onto the podcast kicking and screaming. You have. (laughs) But it's so good to have you here. So Thank you. Well done with all of your doctor diaries. They've been really interesting and fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you on and hear your story. So maybe you can take us right to the beginning and tell me about your journey starting out in medicine and then choosing plastic surgery. Uh, Well, I think I got into medicine by default because I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. And my best friend in high school put down medicine. So I thought, oh yeah, they'll do. I'll put that down as well. I'll just hang out with her. So bizarrely, I got in and um, I actually got into studying music at Adelaide Uni as well. And so during the school holiday break, I said to my mum, because I was going to Sydney for a music camp, and I said to my mum, go enrol me in music. That's what I want to do. I do not want to study medicine. So my mum went and enrolled me into medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Like a a good ethnic mother. (laughs) And so then that journey sort of began at Adelaide Uni, so that was really fun. That's exciting. Um, so what was your instruments? Oh, I got accepted into the conservatorium to play piano, to study piano. Wow. So, so that, um, that was the sliding door moment. That was a sliding door moment. And I think, you know, at that level you had to do like two or three hours of piano practice a day. And so after I started medicine, I stopped playing the piano. <laughs> oh. oh, what a shame. I'm sure that you still got that talent somewhere. Oh, look, everyone's got amazing hidden talent. Sometimes some things like, you know, with sport or other things, they need a lot of dedication. And so you can't do everything and life's short. So you've got to get out and do other things. And um, I was never going to be a full-time musician. So that sort of went by the wayside and just life and being a young adult took over. Ah, And you got into medicine at Adelaide University. Yeah, at Adelaide Uni, which was really good. So I think about 120 of us started and about 90 of us finished. I did mine through Adelaide University, but there's another really fantastic med school at Flinders University, but we didn't really have much to do with each other at that stage, whereas I think now they sort of interact a little bit more. Right. So you completed your training? Completed my training and I went off and did my internship at Queen Elizabeth and used to ride my bike down to Downport Adelaide which is, uh, I don't know, probably about 20K. It's not that big. It's felt a long way, but Adelaide, it's not a really long way. 
So that was really fun. And then I did a year of medical training, which was like physician's training. And that was interesting, but I did decide that I didn't want to look at this terribly big fat book called Harrison's, which everyone had to study. So, um, and I really had enjoyed my surgical term. So I went and spoke to my surgical consultants at the time and they were really lovely, but they were quite paternal, paternalistic. Like they were just looking at me as their daughter, I think now in retrospect, because they had daughters my own age. And they were sort of saying things like, oh, Marie, you really should consider not doing surgery. It's such a difficult thing for women to do. And um, perhaps you want to think about something else. Well, that really got the wind up my nose um, (laughs) because I was a bit of a radical feminist at that stage. So I decided I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do in Adelaide. And I saw an ad in the advertiser, which is the equivalent of the Herald Sun or the Age in Victoria for an Uh, a job as a junior doctor at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. So I applied to that and I got the job and they offered me these amazing rotations, which I thought, oh, goodness, I'd never get those in Adelaide because Adelaide was just different mindset to Victoria at that stage. So I remember getting on the train and waving goodbye to my parents and I remember hearing my dad saying to my mum, she's never coming back. And I thought to myself, of course I'm coming back. I'm just going for a year. Don't be so dramatic. Anyway, he was right. (laughs) No. Oh, my goodness. So, yes, you you live here in Melbourne now, which is great because I live here too. We get to. I know. We get to see each other, which is good. So you did all your rotations at the Royal Melbourne? So training at that point is you had to do internship, then junior, junior resident, then senior resident, then unaccredited registrar, then accredited registrar, and then if you weren't kicked off the program and you were accredited, you had to sit another exam and then you became a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. But when I got to Melbourne, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So I had this amazing rotation doing plastic surgery, e-nose and throat, ophthalmology, psychiatry, anaesthetic training and emergency medicine in A&E, which was fantastic because it gave me a really broad exposure to a lot of the surgical subspecialties as well as psychiatry, which I thought at one stage I might want to do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, now that you are a very well-regarded plastic surgeon, looking back at your options back there, should you have chosen a different pathway? Well, I didn't. It, uh, you never really know. I think even talking to my junior registrars like yesterday or the day before, they were sort of getting quite despondent about their choices and getting in. And there's lots of different pathways Everyone's different. I mean, for me, I really liked a whole variety of different things. So I was choosing what would be the most exciting thing for the greatest amount of time to go ahead and do. So I didn't think I'd get into plastic surgical training. So I decided I would try for ophthalmology. Um, So if I went on my ophthalmology path and then I got to the interview and the guy in the interview told me I was a new bowl young woman and I wouldn't have any trouble getting into anything I wanted to do, (laughs) which was probably inappropriate like it would not be considered appropriate these days to mention anything about your gender let alone what they thought about you so um, I remember getting very angry in that interview and walking out thinking bad luck I'm not doing ophthalmology and off I went to do plastics (laughs) so it was good and there were lots of um, there were a fair few women in surgery in Victoria as opposed to South Australia. So that sort of was really good to have some vision of mentors ahead of you doing something. It just made it really possible to envisage yourself in that position as opposed to South Australia where there were two women in surgery for the entire state. And it just, as a young 
person, it just made it seem impossible, absolutely impossible to ever get to that point. But um, Victoria was really good that there had been some amazing women beforehand. So there were four or five plastic surgeons in Victoria by the time I got here. So it just made it, you know, psychologically, it made it seem that it may actually possibly happen. So it was good. Wow. It's interesting, like to get to that point in terms of your education is hard enough, but to think of, should I be doing this because I'm a woman and what's that going to be like in that training? And, you know, the whole way that everybody's been going, maybe not for you. Don't yeah. go down that path. Well, I think it's a lot easier now. It's been really interesting to see how that whole, and I mean, not just in surgery, but generally in society, there's been such a big shift into, you know, women being angry about not being allowed to do things or not being included. And then there's been, you know, number trading and then um, people making more emphasis on women being accepted into all sorts of fields. So it does actually make a big difference for people coming behind you to be able to envisage themselves in a position. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. You've come to us as a trailblazer as well, which is good. Hardly. There were very big trailblazers before me. I was just <laughs> riding on their coattails. <laughs> so you got accepted into the plastic surgery program? Yeah. And so at that stage there were nine trainees and um, for a year or two I was the only girl in Australia and I had a lovely a colleague called Alessandra who was in New Zealand. So we were the two girly trainees for about two years and then a few other women came along, so that was really good. And so that was a four-year training program and you got rotated through the different major hospitals of Victoria if you were a Victorian trainee. So that was really very, very educational, lots of character building as well as obviously lots of academic and hand learning. What what do you Uh, mean by character building, Marie? Oh, goodness. Well, it it depends. If you talk about it at the time, it was quite character building. In retrospect, no, they were both character building. Just being in a big unit that was really busy and you being like in charge of communicating with the junior staff, the, you know, looking after the patients and then communicating with your bosses, finding a way to find comfort in communicating with everybody and learning at the same time, different personalities, different surgeons that had different styles of teaching, some of which were a bit more aggressive, some of which were a little bit more supportive. So character building in terms of just learning how to be stronger as a person. Yeah. I suppose a lot of those skills that you don't get taught on the way up, leadership. Leadership, yep. Working with colleagues, older, more senior, younger. Yeah, it's a little bit of a baptism of fire, I can imagine. But there was also, and there still is, but there's sort of a very hierarchical structure as well of like who's the boss, the consultant, and then the different sort of stages of everyone in their training and feeling comfortable at your stage and being able to question and how to question and then if something doesn't go right or say if someone's upset about something, how to bring that up in conversation without feeling that someone will think you as being weak or not capable. So I think an incredible amount has been done in making trainees more aware of being able to bring those type of problems to the fore and discuss them with consultants. And I think surgeons are now being very supported in being very open and transparent. I know they're very catchphrases at the moment, but just being a lot more accommodating to people as opposed to the hierarchical structure, which sometimes public hospitals can be. Right. 
Yes. So it's good that times are changing. Yeah, very much so. I mean, times always change. Slowly, slowly things change. But I, I really think in the last sort of 20 years, there's been huge changes, but not just in surgery. I think just culturally, if we look across you know, boards and executives and, you know, business owners like yourself and women getting up and being present everywhere and feeling a lot more comfortable, but also men feeling a lot more comfortable in a different non-male environment, so a sort of gender-neutral environment, I think is fantastic Mm. for everybody. Well, we're heading, definitely heading in the right direction. So, Marie, part of your training, you studied overseas as well. Yeah. Tell me about that. So, part, part of it, it's not so much done now, but before a lot of surgical trainees would go overseas for a year or two or even a few months just to get an idea, go and work in a unit that might specialise in a particular area that they're interested in or often it's units where people publish a lot of papers so they're sort of well known on the medical circuit and so often you travel off and live a different life somewhere else and have an opportunity to do things that you might not have done in Melbourne and travel and meet people and meet colleagues from different places as well as learn um, specific techniques or get a broader knowledge in a field that you might be really interested in. So I'd been looking at going to the States, but I failed my, I didn't fail, but I hadn't sat my English exam in time. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Because Jack and Jill do go up the hill and you do need to know what that means in the vernacular of the country you're going to. Um, So I had applied for a job in America, but uh, they excluded me on the grounds that I hadn't um, done my English exam in a timely manner or fashion. So then I sort of went to the UK, which was really good. So at that stage, the NHS was quite happy to have exchange programs with Australia, which was Fantastic. So I spent three years over there working and that was brilliant, not just from a medical point of view or just meeting colleagues and seeing different people do similar things in a different way and expanding your knowledge and working as sort of a junior consultant. It was also fantastic because it was so close to Europe. So you got to travel a lot and there were lots of really cheap flights over to Europe. So most weekends we sort of travelled, which was oh, brilliant. Yeah. I saw, I saw your photos. They looked amazing. <laughs> I was very envious. <laughs> they were really fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's brilliant. So you know, through that time in, in Europe, was there any? I know you had a passion with music and all those sorts of things prior to diving headfirst into medicine, and then your training with plastic surgeon. But are there any other passions that you picked up while travelling around Europe? So I just really like the idea of learning language and I really like the idea of Italy. So I I spent, um, it was a good time because you're not beholden to a job, like you'll finish a rotation, like most of the English jobs were six months or a year. So if you finish that, you didn't have to start a job straight away if you didn't want to. So I I thought it would be a good opportunity to um, go and study a language. So I I had one month or two months, one month in Florence and a month in Siena learning Italian. And I thought it might be really nice to do some drawing. So I had a month in Florence on a separate occasion doing some pencil drawing, which was great. And then I had a phase where I was a bit angry with life. So I thought bashing a bit of stone might be really good. So I did about a month and a half of doing some marble sculpting or being a student in marble sculpting, I should say, in Italy as well. So that was really fun. So it was just good to do a few different things, which once you're back in Australia and you've got a job and you're, you know, busy doing your everyday stuff, there wouldn't have been an opportunity to do that. Yeah. What an amazing opportunity to... It really was. It's um, 
It's like having a gap year, but when you finished your, when you're a bit older. <laughs> so it was good. Uh, it's fantastic. Fantastic. So what were the attitudes to female plastic surgeons overseas compared to Australia? There are a lot more women there. I think that, um, so it's going back to the 90s. So that's, you know, a good 20 years ago. And Australia is very different now. But I think when I got to the UK, people were just a lot politer and there was less bravado that even the men had among themselves, which is probably, it might just be a reflection of their British politeness, but people were a bit more open to discussion. There wasn't quite as much one-upmanship. There was less sort of masculine, chest-beating bravado. People were just a little gentler in their person-to-person communication Mm. um, and unit discussions, and that was a real delight to see. Yeah, fantastic. It's good that they seem to be in a, a different stage or a different level there at that particular point? It might have just been the units I worked in, but that was sort of my impression. But it's always difficult because I had sort of moved on a bit as well and I was a junior consultant, not a registrar, so their interactions with me were maybe different if I was junior. So you never really know, but that was my general impression, which was nice. You could bring it back here and go, you know what, we can all be civil to each other and we can be really nice and have a good working relationship, which I reckon in the last 20 years has really evolved. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So you did come back to Australia, which is great, and you opened up your own private practice. So tell me how. So um, I had worked as a junior resident. I had worked with a lovely fellow called David Hunter-Smith. And um, when I got back to Australia, he sort of rang up and said, we're really busy down here in Mornington, or they were in Mount Eliza at that stage. Why don't you come down and, you know, do a few sessions and just see how it goes and, So I did and it got busier and busier and my sessions grew from one to two and then from two to three and then from three to six. And then before I knew it, I was really busy. And as you know, I spent about three months living in your living room, which was fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there was time that the Oversby family thought perhaps she should move out. No, I I never thought that. I would have loved (laughs) to stay the whole time. No, no, it was was lovely. I think um, your daughter, Katya, loved doing the dramatic (laughs) curtain draw across my um, bedroom. So that was great. But um, <laughs> so I moved into St Kilda and then just driving from St Kilda down to Mornington was like, you know, this is like two hours of my life that's wasted. If I do this for the next 20 years, it's going to be like four years of driving where I could have done something else. So I ended up moving down here. Um, so I'm working at Frankston Hospital as a public appointment and then private practice in Mornington. Uh, you've got a very beautiful and successful practice there with David and everybody that's along with you. So, Well, I um, think we probably have been in practice longer than any other two plastic surgeons in Victoria. So <laughs> something must be working. And we've got lovely David Syme who's joined us recently and he's going to be going off to Darwin for three months. Darwin is pretty low on specialist surgeons. They often have fly-in, fly-out type arrangements. Yeah. So the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons has been encouraging people to do two or three months stints as an exchange, or not as an exchange, but to go there and work. So David Sim, who's absolutely passionate, fantastic hand surgeon and very, very passionate about it, has um, is taking his family up there in September, I think, for three months. So we've got a beautiful young lady called Felicity Conlon coming down to join us oh. for do his locum. So oh. even more girls, it'll be great. 
That is brilliant. Well, you must be doing something right if people would like to come and join you, which is a big plus. Well, I think it's just that, you know, the practice is all set up. So as a junior person who's just finished, it's like, oh, they can try things out. There's no financial commitment. You just come and work and find your feet in a different sort of role as a, as a consultant, not as a registrar. And, uh, you know, your secretary and your paperwork and your computer and all that stuff that running a business involves is all set up for you. It's short term, you know, two, three months. If you love it, great. If you don't love it, fine. Move on. Find something else that suits you. So it's a fantastic opportunity as a locum. Yeah. And I think that's very good advice because you can try here and there and then say, oh, I'd like to put my roots down wherever it sort of suits. Yeah. It's really exciting. Exactly. So, Marie, tell me a bit more about how your private practice has evolved and what kind of patients are you primarily seeing? Um, so the practice is pretty general and pretty broad. Um, so I would be involved with a fair bit of breast reconstructive work um, in sort of a cancer setting or just a congenital asymmetry or breast reductions or breast augmentations which is lovely to be able to look after women. And then there's a whole sort of spectrum of skin cancer. Us Australians, are, uh, white Caucasian Australians, aren't really designed to be in the Australian sun. And a lot of people down on the peninsula love the beachside lifestyle and golfing and surfing and sailing. So there's a lot of skin cancer work, uh, which can be really simple or can be a lot more complicated. Then there's the sort of the whole aesthetic side of cosmetic surgery. And then there's hand surgery, mm. so which um, can be a lot of nerve compressions or uh, tendon problems or fractures or stuff like that. So there's a lot of general there, but I might just sort of touch on the aesthetic because I, I wouldn't mind exploring the correlation between aesthetic plastic surgery, your music, your drawing and your sculpting. Mm, how's that for a connection? So obviously there's a big artistic side to you as well in terms of music or seeing form and what that looks like. Do you feel that there's those kind of thoughts and the way you look at the arts and you bring it across to your surgery when you're looking at symmetry and what a person might look like? I don't think it's just me. I think it's just the person. I think in plastic surgery, you'll often find a lot of surgeons are really interested in drawing or have some artistic pursuits. So I guess if you're changing people, changing bodies, you're then trying to mould them into a different shape or do something to them to make them more aesthetically pleasing, whatever that aesthetics of your culture is, because different cultures have different viewpoints of what's aesthetically pleasing. So Often if you do the Maya Briggs personality type questionnaires, a lot of the plastic surgery group will be grouped into the more sort of intuitive artistic side. So the different, so guys that run the questionnaire programs for different what we call craft groups will say that different groups often are very different to each other. So like orthopedic surgeons or um, neurosurgeons or cardiothoracic surgeons are quite different to a group of plastic surgeons which tend to need to think, not that I don't want to say that the other guys think algorithmically, but often we have to think differently, especially in the reconstructive field, which draws into the aesthetic field. We have to look at what the person's shape is or body is, what the defect is, how you've got to reconstruct it, what you have to design. So each designer, each flat would be 
different for each person depending on the skin type, how big it is, what you've got of their body that you can move around. And so that then flows into aesthetic surgery where they present with an issue they don't like. And although there are algorithms of how to go about changing things, you have to be able to choose the right way to manipulate someone's body and skin and tissue to get them the most aesthetic outcome that they would be wanting. That is interesting, yeah. So really with plastic surgery, it's not just surgery. There's an expectation of a particular outcome by the patient where perhaps the other craft groups you go, oh, you've saved my leg, that's good, fantastic. Well, (laughs) yeah. Whereas ours will all say, you saved my leg, but you did it so beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you know, even our colleagues, sometimes you do, do a reconstruction and someone will go, why is it so blobby? Why did you do it like that? Why didn't you do it like this? Hey, have you thought about this? And you go, oh, actually, that would have looked better if I'd done it like that. So function comes first, but aesthetics is a very important part of it. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, actually. Patient expectations obviously have changed. Oh, absolutely. So where, you know, in the past, patients would have just gone where they're referred. Oh, thanks so much for operating on me. Now it's like, not only are you going to operate on me, I want you to make me look like this. So tell me about that. How's that changed over time? Well, I guess probably the concept of people having plastic surgery has become a lot more accessible So before, I guess it was something that people didn't really talk about, whereas now it's very much out in social media. It's out in the general media. There's books written about it. There's programs about it, as you know. There's botched and, you know, Beverly Hills housewives and they're all going off to get surgery or injectables or being altered in some way. So I guess the public perception of it being available is much more extensive. And then there are many Facebook chat sites Instagram posts, Google reviews. So I guess people have a vision of what they want. Even before we had all of those things as young people or even older people, we all have a vision of how we think we want to look, whether it's from a photo of seeing someone or someone you know, you want to be similar to them or you think that will make you happier if you're that way. You don't really know, but people are just bombarded with images now that they think their life would be more fulfilled if they look this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think ultimately it'd be really nice if we had a society where we could just be happy with who we are, but we're not. Or, I mean, not just to say that. I mean, sometimes people have very considerable issues that uh, hinder them, which you can help them by altering surgically. So expectations, that very large part of plastic surgical management is managing people's expectations and firstly eliciting from them what their vision of what they'd like, what it is, then trying to marry their what you perceive their vision of their outcome, how that would actually fit with what their body is like and then what sort of realistic surgical outcome you can have. So marrying all those things up is really important to manage people's expectations so that they're not unhappy if their expectations aren't met. And if their expectations don't meet up with what is actually possible to achieve, you need to be able to have a way of, presenting them to them like if I'm unable to get their result that they want but I think one of my colleagues may be then it's really good to refer them along yeah and there's absolutely no problem with doing that or if I think their expectations are really unrealistic then we need to be able to have a gentle way of presenting it to them and possibly allowing them to realize that their expectations are unrealistic Mm. Mm. oh absolutely and you know as you say people see what they 
believe they want to look like. But there's, from your perspective, there's probably physiologically this can't happen, even through surgery, you know. Oh, yeah, sometimes it can't. I think that's why images are really, really important. So, you know, we sort of use PowerPoint presentations and images people often want to see before and afters. Sometimes you need to present someone in a similar body to them that that's a realistic outcome Mm -hmm. as opposed to someone very different from them which they may be aspiring to. But majority of the time, I've got to say, like 70 to 80% people are very realistic after a conversation. Sometimes you have a conversation, they go, oh, I thought this was possible, and you go, well, it is, but for you it's not type thing. Yeah, yeah. It's managing those expectations, as you say. So have you seen a change in what patients are asking for over time as well? Is it still consistent? Like are people wanting the same sort of surgeries or are times changing? With um, I think that there's sort of a baseline which is the same and then every now and then if there's a new technique on the horizon and people have been searching it on Google or, or just looking at for it on the internet, then there might be a spike in interest and so you might get phone calls regarding certain techniques. So I guess a little bit of it is if companies are marketing techniques, they've got a, you know, a little catchphrase that they've got to catch people's interest so they can't really present the entire, yeah, but sometimes their little catchphrase can give people false expectations. So they'll ring and ask and come and talk and I want this done and, and it's like, well, oh, it's not really going to work or perhaps it's not going to be as successful as you think. So, yeah, that's sort of managing those things as well. Yeah, managing those expectations. Well, speaking of managing, you've got a young family. (laughs) How do you manage everything? How do you manage being amazing plastic surgeon, a mother, your own hobbies? How do you meld? What do you do? Polly. Oh, you do not. I know that for a fact you do a fantastic job. Um, I think life is a big sinusoid wave and I think we all aspire for the sweet spot in all sorts of different areas of our life, but there's you can only be at that sweet spot for about a second and then there's some catastrophe one way or the other. But uh, my one, okay, I'll tell you how I manage it. It's, it's a joy. All of it's really good, but each one has its own set of issues and at different times one feels like it's really good and the other ones are completely out of control and then you make little adjustments to try and keep them all more or less happy but one of my favorite quotes someone said to me was if you don't have any problems in life it means you're dead so (laughs) (laughs) I reckon bring on the problems because they're just good to solve them at least I know I'm still breathing oh my god what a great attitude what a fantastic attitude but I totally agree it's just a journey and, and that juggling of the balls that just comes with the with what you're doing, which is, and you're doing a great job, I've got to say. Thank you. Well, I guess one of the good things about being self-employed, um, a plug for self-employment, is that if everything goes completely haywire, then I do have the ability to go, look, I'm really sorry, I've got to change this day. And unfortunately, inconveniences some patients and I try and make it up to them, but you just can't be everywhere at once and you can't be everything to everyone and you just have to do the best you can (laughs) (laughs) on as many fronts as possible. (laughs) Yeah, like catching up with your girlfriend for a champagne. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) 
very important. Cancel that list. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fantastic. You're just amazing, Marie. So, and don't, oh, don't, don't deny it. You've been my good friend for many years, and I think you're absolutely amazing. Thank so, you. likewise. Now, I'm going to take you back to deciding to going to medicine and going down that pathway. Now, with all your experiences and where you are in life, is there anything that you would tell your younger self? My younger self. Well, I was thinking about that the other day, actually. It's difficult to know what to say to your younger self because you're only here because of the, like I'm only me because of the experiences I went through. So if I tell my myself something not to do, then I might not be the same person sitting here talking to you. So it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what would I what would I say? I would say not to sweat the small stuff, but everyone has to go through that journey, and that it's a journey, and it's not a you know the joy is the travelling to the destination, not the arrival. And I'll go back to if you don't have a problem, it means you're dead. <laughs> Exactly. So keep on bringing on on those. Keep on keeping on. Just do the best you can every day. And that's, but so long as you're honest with yourself and you are doing the best you can every day, that's all you can do. That's it. That's it. Oh, that's fantastic advice. Well, Marie, thanks so much for your time today and your thank you. You're an amazing woman. You're an amazing woman. You're an amazing businesswoman. Bring on the businesswomen. It's absolutely fantastic to see um, women just being able to be in control of their own lives and making big steps. Yeah, like you and me. It's great. I love it. (laughs) It's it's so much fun. All right, Marie, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. I look look forward to catching up with you soon. Champagne. It's on. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening to The Doctor Diaries. You can find out more about our amazing guests on our website, hanyaroversby.com.au or join our Instagram page, Doctor Diaries Podcast, to find out more about our podcasts. We look forward to you joining us again.